You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, and welcome to a special self-promotional episode of the Longform Podcast. Uh, insider baseball, within the family, uh, conflicts of interest abound in this special episode. My guest today is um, Evan Ratliff. Hi, Max. We're here to talk about uh, a story that was written by Evan Ratliff. It's called The Mastermind. It was serialized over seven parts, the final one of which just came out. The story that Evan has dedicated months of his life to is now out in the world in full. This is true. I also need to admit that I'd only read the first two parts before like six hours ago. That's a lot of reading. Over the last six hours... I read parts three through seven, and the thing I want to do right now is give you a hug. That was fucking amazing, <laughs> Evan. We could just get, we could just have a hug, and then we could, we could. That could be the end of this podcast. <laughs> I remember when I had this idea, I wanted to do it in serialized form, and I actually came to talk to you about it. And one of the things you said to me is, "I don't think those things ever work." <laughs> and so, but you explained to me why you thought they didn't work. And I feel like one of the things I've been doing is like trying to solve that problem the whole, like work around that problem the whole time and figure out like to whatever extent working, whatever that means, trying to figure out like what makes this relevant to do in this way, you know, as opposed to just doing it as a story. Did you figure that out? I guess people who read it would have to more judge that than me. But to me, the thing that besides the story itself, which is obviously was clearly deeply interesting to me, or I wouldn't have spent really like years tracking it. But the thing about the serialized thing, I mean, like many people, I was a, obsessed with serial. Like I think serial is a really incredible form of journalism, uh, the show. But what interests me is maybe not what interests everyone, which was this sort of way in which the reporting kept going. Like that's what blew my mind. The reporting in real time. Yeah, that you you listen to the second or third one of the first season and you realize, oh shit, like they're actually getting new stuff and putting these together every single week. Right. What was interesting to you was the the production part, not necessarily the consumption part. Yeah. Because a crazy thing that happened in your story, which I think serial, especially season one and two, that they were hoping would happen was the first couple episodes would come out and people would come out of the woodwork and they would be able to report 
based on like the momentum of those first couple of episodes, it didn't really happen. But for you, it kind of did happen. Yeah, we wanted to give that sense of like the immediacy of something in production, like something where you're learn still learning about it and something from last week could be different this week. And and also there were big gaps in the reporting. It was just a really it was a hard thing to report and a lot of people wouldn't talk. We could talk about why they wouldn't talk, but I was hoping that some people would come to me and or people who I had talked to would suddenly say, oh, now I see what you're doing. I'll talk. And that's that's what happened. In fact, some of the biggest sources in the whole thing, I didn't even I hadn't even really interviewed them until like two episodes in. So let's go back. And I don't know how you can like briefly give the synopsis of the mastermind. But for people who are listening who do not know what the story is about, What's the story about? It's predominantly about this guy named Paul Calder LaRue. So he's a guy who was born in Zimbabwe. He was a computer programmer. He was a brilliant computer programmer. Uh, I mean, is, I guess you could say. Got really into code when he was a kid and teenager, then sort of started moving around the world. And he wrote this encryption software called Encryption for the Masses, E4M, which is somewhat famous in that it became the software that was uh, led to this other piece of software called TrueCrypt, which is like one of the most famous encryption software, pieces of software that exists. You encrypt S- Snowden's one. Snowden, it's not clear if Snowden used it, but he definitely advocated for it and told people to use it. Actually, the journalists who work on the Snowden material, they use it. So yeah. it's still in very wide use. There's a today. great scene in your story where it's like Snowden throwing a like, how to do encryption party in Hawaii. <laughs> Yeah, he's throwing at a party about, and he's he's extolling the benefits of TrueCrypt. At the same time, the guy who wrote the code underlying TrueCrypt at that time is like in U.S. custody and working as like a, an informant. So to go back to Paul Leroux, what what happened to Paul Leroux was he was a programmer. He wrote this encryption software. He had a dispute with someone over that. After that dispute, he started this sort of online pharmacy company. Like he was trying to get into all these online companies, like online gambling. He wanted to make a lot of money. He had this sort of like dark side tendency in a way. And so he started this online pharmacy company, which was also brilliant in its construction, where they sold prescription drugs in the United States over the Internet. But they were supplied by American pharmacies and they were prescriptions written by American doctors. So it was like this whole network where they recruited local pharmacies and doctors to do that. Patients would go online, fill out a questionnaire. That questionnaire would go to a doctor. A doctor would approve the prescription. The prescription would get sent to a pharmacy, and the pharmacy would FedEx it to the patient, but no one actually ever like, saw each other in right. person. And LaRue's programming genius allowed this whole enterprise to work. Yeah, he built a network to connect all those people in addition to hundreds, if not thousands, of like affiliate sites who could funnel customers into the main thing and there were these characters like these like a doctor you know a pharmacist in Oshkosh Wisconsin who's like you know 70 something years old who just gets like a fax from this company called Alphanet that says if you fill these prescriptions you can get a three dollar fee for every one and he's like struggling against big box pharmacies in his local you know town and he's got a family pharmacy and he's so he signs up for it and soon he's doing tens of thousands of prescriptions and millions of dollars are like coursing through his bank accounts and then tens of millions of dollars so the whole thing at different points was making hundreds of millions of dollars and larue meanwhile had moved to the philippines and he was sort of running it out of the philippines and then from there he sort of parlayed that into like a real criminal cartel like he got into a lot of like gold smuggling and things in Africa and he was laundering a lot of money 
and then he got into cocaine, shipping cocaine and meth, and then he got into shipping arms and weapons and like heavy weapons, and then it just like from there it just goes into places that are difficult to believe. Like he started his own like militia in Somalia, wanted to invade uh, the Maldives. The Maldives, he, yeah, he's going to take over the Maldives. So, yeah, and and this is like where the reporting gets really weird because multiple people are like he wanted to invade the Maldives, and you're just like that's not there's that's not possible. Like that is ridiculous. And then someone else says it. They're like, yeah, I think he had this plan. He wanted to install like a dictator and then he would have a safe haven to operate out of there. And that's why he was in Somalia. I just want to stop you. Uh, if you're listening, what Evan just said is that this guy, Paul LaRue, was building an army to invade the Maldives to install a dictator so he would have a safe haven to run his giant online crime syndicate. Yeah, basically. This is a real thing. <laughs> but he sort of, I think he kind of denies that. But like the other alternative, like if you were to say like, that's not what he was doing in Somalia. The the alternative to that is that he was like obtaining land to like grow coca, to like produce cocaine in Somalia, which had no government. It was a completely like failed state full of like clans that were fighting each other. And he just like came in with weapons and money and just said, I'm just going to start this militia and figure out what I can do. So you... He got a lot. He got involved in an incredible array of schemes, some of which had strange geopolitical implications, and then eventually uh, he was arrested by the U.S. government. And then there's a whole like second act where he he flipped. He he became an informant for the U.S. government, and he from custody. He basically set up, helped the DEA set up these sting operations because none of his people knew that he'd been flipped. No. So as soon as he was arrested, like. The next day, they had him emailing everyone saying, you know, with new deals and here I am so that people wouldn't know that he was in custody. And then he set all of these people up on these equally crazy schemes like to murder a DEA agent. They were all fake, but he set them up so that they could be arrested by the DEA. Well, once you've put forward the plan of invading and taking over the Maldives, I feel like there's no uh, there's no plan too crazy. Yeah. And his people, it's not like they thought oh, wow, like murdering a DEA agent, like that's not something he would ever do because he got, the cartel got very, I mean, and this is another thing about the story is it it sounds very like true crimey and, and sort of, uh, wow, all these schemes and there is that element of it. But he also, it got very violent and he, he had people killed, murdered in these horrible ways and people who had just sort of came across him in different ways that weren't even really part of the organization were killed and threatened and houses firebombed. And so it sort of turned into like a real like cartel from this online prescription drug thing, it turned into like a real, like violent criminal organization. I'm actually speechless, like I, I, which is not a helpful thing for a podcast. <laughs> Maybe we should talk a little bit about like your reporting process. When did this start? I mean, it was in the news. It was first in the news when uh, this guy, Joseph Hunter, who was the guy that said he would, you know, he arranged a plot to like kill this DEA agent and, in a sting operation, he was arrested in 2013. And that was like, it was world news because his nickname was Rambo. So it was like Joseph Rambo Hunter, all, you know, everywhere you could find this story. He wearing a Homer Simpson t-shirt. He was wearing a Homer Simpson t-shirt. Like the whole thing was just ridiculous. And I saw it and, you know, probably like a bunch of magazine writers said like, it uh, sounds like a good magazine story. And then there was another story that came out at the same time about a group of guys that were arrested for trafficking meth out of North Korea. And the Washington Post actually made like a link between the two cases. 
And I thought, there's got to be, like, what is this link? Like, what's going on here? There's something very big here, but I couldn't figure out what it was. In fact, I pitched it, sort of. I, I talked to the New York Times Magazine about it at that time and couldn't really get anywhere with it. And I just kind of, like, let it drop for a little while. And then what happened was the Times, there's a reporter at the Times named Alan Fuhrer, who he actually broke the news that Paul LaRue was the person behind this whole thing. Like, he found that out. And then... Then I kind of, I had been following it and reading court documents and stuff and trying to figure out a way in for like a year, more than a year. And then when that came out, I thought, uh, this is, I can see how this story might go, but I kind of thought, well, someone else will do it. So I actually sat on it for another couple months before I started just like really, really digging in. Are you doing that all the time? Where does that thing come from? Like, are you just kind of chasing stuff all the time? Not anymore. I mean, if to the extent that I am, it's usually to, to we're looking for things to assign to mm-hmm. Adams Magazine writers, not for myself. Um, in fact, probably one of the things that delayed this for a long time is like I was kind of reluctant to do the story my do a story for us myself because I've done that in the past and I don't like to do it very often. I can tell you I have three stories on my story list that I've been tracking for like two years, maybe more than two years. And this one, if you had looked on my desk at any point, I had like a bunch of indictments printed out in a big stack on my desk. So. I would just kind of like poke around on it. And it was a really sort of like late night, like internet thing because there were so many interesting internet aspects of the story that there was an infinite amount of research that could be done without even talking to anyone. So just late at night, like looking at like Hong Kong court files and like there's all these databases of companies and he had shell companies all over the world. So it was like tracking a company and then they would have in the database, they'd have three people on the board of directors and I'd be like, who are these people? And one of those people would track to another company. So it was just like, and I could just do that. Like after my family went to sleep, <laughs> uh, just as late into the night until I, until I ran out of gas. So I'm very jealous of that instinct. Like the way that you relax after your family goes to sleep is like <laughs> checking out and investigating shell companies. And I just like watch the same sports documentaries again and again. <laughs> well, we, it was a it was an issue with um, with trying to write the story because I did have a lot of sort of aha moments, but they're very difficult to describe, and they all occurred in the exact same me sitting at my desk with like well, there, there's a, a drink. There's a moment in the story, like you know that one of my like main classifications for stories is like holy shit stories. Like I'm just I'm always like just searching my email for the phrase holy shit if I need to like put together a collection or something. <laughs> and there's a moment in the story where you're like, and there I was sitting at my desk, like. I can infer that there was like bourbon there and uh, and you were like, and something came up and it's like, I typed the words in my notes. Holy shit. Yeah. That was the only time I really did that. Cause, cause also there's no one to share it with. Like I was just sitting up late at night and like it would even be difficult to explain to anyone like, oh wow, this uh, world away PTY company has the same address as this. Like someone would just say like, what, why is that interesting? Well, that was part of what I was thinking about. <laughs> I was reading it was like, I don't know. You and I have had one million conversations over the course of the time that you've been reporting the story. How, like, we've talked about some really mundane bullshit. How did you not like ever just be like, ah, this is the thing that happened last night? I think I, I, for a long time, I've just been afraid that I've spent so much time on it and it wasn't going to work or I wasn't going to be able to do it. Like, even up to very close to the end, I was very just concerned that I didn't have enough. Were uh, you worried you were going to get scooped? I was definitely worried I was going to get scooped. I mean, other reporters were working on it at different points. Really, really good reporters were, were I came across them at different points. So, you know, I would go through a couple of days of being like, oh, no, like this person's on it. Like, maybe I should just quit because I don't 
Like, I don't like going in and, like, beating someone to the story. It's more like fear. Like, I don't want to work on this for almost two years and then have a big story appear and feel like I'm now following someone else. So that, I think that's why I didn't want to talk about it. It's like I didn't want to build it up as something and then be like, oh, it didn't work. Even to the point where I, I was taking trips and I didn't tell a lot of people about those trips. I didn't say, oh, I got this crazy stuff. Like, I would just be like, yeah, yeah, I went pretty well. When did it turn back on for you? Like, if it had been something you'd sort of been poking around in, what was the moment where you were like, okay, I'm going to dedicate months of my life. I'm going to travel to, you went to Israel? To Israel and the Philippines. Tell me about those trips, especially the Philippines one. You talk about them in the story, but my sense was when you were going, like, you didn't really know what what you were going to find. And you were also, so many of these threads were kind of mysterious and died in strange places. And like when you went to the Philippines, you were, I guess, primarily looking into the murder of the real estate agent. Yeah. Well, it was hard to decide when to go. Every month I kept saying, oh, now, now I'm going to go. And I, and I knew there's just a limit to what you can figure out online, first of all, but also that people, even I would get in touch with people and there's just something about people getting an email or like a Facebook message, like some of them will talk, but these are people who are legitimately afraid for their lives. Like they worked for Paul LaRue. Paul LaRue has people killed. They're afraid that if they talk to me, he'll find out and some at some point he'll have them killed or someone that he worked with will have them killed. So even though at this point they knew he had flipped, they knew he was in U.S. custody, but they they kept him so secret the U.S. government kept him so secret that people didn't really know whether he was still in custody. So they didn't know until March of this year. People didn't know, oh, did they let him loose? Like, are they letting him go around the world and do this stuff? Did you know? I didn't know for sure, but I, I had a hunch they weren't just letting him out. Like, they may let him out eventually. Uh, he may get a short sentence because of his cooperation, but it didn't seem likely that they were just going to free him with no notice, although they could have put him in the witness protection program, it was always possible. So I couldn't reassure those people. I couldn't say to them, come on, like he's in, the DEA has him, he's not going to do anything to you. Because he's got people, South African mercenaries that work for him running around, you know, like maybe still working for, maybe enforcing him, maybe doing payback. You know, there's there's just like so much unknown in this whole collection of, I mean, a thousand people worked for him, like in different capacities, a thousand. Like he had call centers, Israeli special forces guys that worked for him. He had South African ex-military guys, American ex-military guys, all of which is to say, actually showing up in the Philippines was a way to sort of show people that I was serious about it. And also some people just want to talk face to face. Like some people wanted to meet at a Starbucks and like probably walk around and look at me at a distance and then come and sit down and then say, okay, like, what do you want? Like, why are you talking to me? So I knew I had to do that. But then it was a question of, like, how much do you need in order to to go get those people? And so in December, I finally just said, like, I have to go. If I don't go now, like, I'm never going to go. And I didn't feel comfortable going. I didn't feel like I knew. I had a huge list of names. I had people I wanted to get in touch with. But there was also, like, a scary amount that I didn't know. Like, who's on what side? Like, One scary element of this maybe perhaps could potentially be that you are dedicating your life to exposing this story of a man who kills people who expose things about him. When you say it that way, it sounds like that, but I just, I'm not inclined to think that way. I think partly because I've interviewed war reporters and like I know people who have gone into really dangerous situations to do reporting and I don't like to classify myself. And part of that just like 
feeds psychologically into thinking like, look, I'm not doing the dangerous work here. Like, this is a different kind of story. But then the other aspect of it is I was very concerned about local reporters that I worked with, fixers that I worked with, and even local reporters that I talked to. So I could kind of like project that onto them. Like, that's what I'm worried about is not putting them in a position where they have to stay in the country and I can just go home and then they're in some kind of danger. So, I mean, I had like paranoia, but not like fear. How do you take precautions in that situation? First of all, I was working with a really talented like local reporter. She's actually American and Filipina. And she had like laid a lot of groundwork. So she had like reached out to people, police and different people and sort of to see who might talk. And so we could go there and we sort of knew that people would be expecting us. And then when I was meeting other people, people who were part of the organization, I didn't want to take her because she's the person who has to stay behind. And I don't know much about these people, if they're dangerous or whatever. So I would meet them in like a public place. Like every, it was actually a problem for the story that I had like four meetings that took place at a Starbucks. Starbucks Everyone yeah. to me at Starbucks. It was the same scene over and over again. And I couldn't <laughs> even say like the man I met at a Starbucks because they were all ID'd the same. Uh, and actually, LaRue did like a lot of his business at a Starbucks. <laughs> Starbucks was, we should have gotten them to sponsor the story, frankly, with product <laughs> placement. So I would meet him in a public place. I mean, I really don't think that uh, in this kind of situation that like some guy, like why meet with me? They're like, what are they going to beat me up? I don't think they're going to do anything to me. Mostly they're scared. Was that your main impression of most of the people who had worked for him was that they were still scared? Some were like, I don't care. They They were scared, either scared of him or they were scared of the U.S. government. So some of them were scared of him coming after them. Some of them were scared of getting indicted because people have been indicted and extradited all over the world to the U.S. It's not clear exactly why the U.S. went to these lengths to try to get them and, and to bring them here for these crimes when they already had Paul LaRue, the man who was sitting atop the whole thing. When you sit down at a Starbucks with, with one of these people, like how, how do you approach that conversation, especially if there's feels to you like there's huge gaps in what you know about their roles and stuff? Like, I don't know. You're you're finding them on like Facebook and LinkedIn. Did you LinkedIn, say? yeah. <laughs> Finally, a like useful service. I, on I have LinkedIn. to say, like, uh, surprising how much I was able to use LinkedIn for this story. Also surprising how many people will put like a criminal organization on their LinkedIn resume. <laughs> I actually talked to a guy who he was like, I should really take that off my LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> like you were part of an organization that like the UN wrote a whole report about the illegal activities you were doing in Somalia. Yes, I would. If I were you, I would just elide that on my resume. Evan Ratliff has endorsed you for <laughs> meth shipping. <laughs> Arms dealing. <laughs> One of the things that was has really bedeviled me in this story are like the ethics of people not speaking, like speaking not for attribution or on background. And there's always these discussions about, you know, what does it mean on background, off the record, and people have different things. And you try to like lay the groundwork groundwork at the beginning. Like you try to say, okay, this is what I mean by this. But I couldn't find anyone who could help me with the situation where someone says, yeah, yeah I don't want my name in it. And I would say, okay, well, there's different ways we could do it. We could say, you're a person who used to work for Paul or whatever, and you'd say, like, no, I don't care about any of that. Don't burn me. Don't burn me because you could get me killed and you could get my family killed. And then I would say, well, okay, but how am I going to know? I can't know what you tell me that could come back to you. And they're just like, figure it out. Like, that happened on several occasions where they, they didn't want to go into the details of how they were identified. They were just like, my safety is in your hands. Like, just be careful. And... 
I didn't really know what to do with that. Like I was sort of trying to balance what to include and what not to include and trying to make these decisions. Like, will Paul LaRue know this person? It's this person. Like, it's impossible. It's impossible to know. So I, I tried to err on the side of caution, but it's, it's like there's no hotline you can call, <laughs> ethics hotline, and be kind of like, what do I do in this situation, you know? How would you figure it out? We did things that I, I, don't, I haven't done in the past in stories. Like we gave people fake names. We put very few identifying details in of people. Sometimes I would go back and check stuff with them. So a lot of them I was, having, I was like engaging in like encrypted email or encrypted chats after interviewing them. So, you know, in some cases I would say, I'm going to use this anecdote. Is this anecdote a problem? And they would say, no, go ahead and use it. So it was sort of like a lot of judgment calls, you know, that were very difficult to make. And fortunately, like Katya is our editor and she's like, she worked the New Yorker. She has a lot of like, she's very, very smart about this stuff. So I could rely on her to like have these conversations and sort of we'd come to a place at the end where we felt comfortable. Are there any that are like haunting you at all? There's ones that I'm worried about. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely worried about a lot of aspects of this story. What you are you know? worried about? You know, we had fact checkers on the story. We had two fact checkers on the story and they're wonderful fact checkers and they did a great job. But you just get in these situations where people tell you something and it's just not confirmable. What's an example of that? Oh, here's an example. So Paul LaRue at one point uh, had his sort of like number two, like enforcer guy killed. He had him murdered. And... I have it on pretty good information that he had him murdered because this guy, his name is Dave Smith, was like f- siphoning off gold. Like he was basically stealing from the organization, which did a lot of its money laundering and gold. So he like bought a Lamborghini. Like he was not being subtle about it. I just need to stop you. Get like just in that like little aside clause, <laughs> Paul LaRue uh, laundered most of his money in gold, which is true, like stashed gold all over Hong Kong and the Philippines. Mm-hmm. He would buy gold in Hong Kong and then transport it to the Philippines. And then so a lot of people think bury it. So there's actually all these people like looking for gold in the Philippines that Paul is supposedly buried. I'm not sure I believe that. But but that's an example of, you know, that kind of detail. This right. Dave Smith thing, like someone told me that they what they understood was that Dave Smith was like put into a grave alive and handed a phone. And Paul LaRue said to him, this is what happens when you steal. And then he was shot and killed. Now, Paul LaRue is not, he's like not available for me to confirm that story. I, he probably wouldn't. So like, do you include that story or not? That one felt like in some ways, like the thing I'm most worried about is doing harm to one of these people in the story. Like that guy is dead. We included that as a story as like, this is what I was told. But then in a later episode, I was actually told a different version of that by a, by a U.S. law enforcement official who said he was thrown off a boat and he was shot and Paul LaRue was there. So like... In some cases, we just didn't include things that I didn't have enough confirmation for because you don't like you don't want to be uh, I don't know just like do printing whatever someone tells you that's absurd. But at the same time, like there were details that they felt like I could trust this person. This person had given me good information. I'd been able to confirm that information somewhere else. And at some point, you got to trust somebody, or else there's no point in doing the story at all. You mentioned uh, law enforcement in New York who had been working on this. For those first couple episodes, you didn't have them. Right. And then after the story came out, they came to you? I mean, I contacted a lot of them. So, you know, I reached out to all the different agencies that were connected with this. In addition to that, I reached out to a lot of former agents, former, you know, people who had worked at the DEA. And so I had a lot of, like, lines out. And then, you know, I think when the story came out, some people saw more what I was doing and then 
were more willing to talk. Um, so they weren't, it wasn't out of the blue mm -hmm. that they came to me, but that too is a, you know, obviously like a sensitive thing, like how are those people described? And it's easy when you look at something like the, the times and, or the Washington post or something and like political stories or like, you know, official people who are named that way. But it just felt to me like it's very, very difficult to come up with exact rules when someone just says like, don't get me in trouble or don't burn me. I mean, all the law enforcement people you did end up talking to were anonymous. Yes, they were anonymous. Were those conversations similar to the ones that you were having with LaRue's people? Like, were they also just saying, like, don't burn me, man? Uh, yeah, in one case, yeah. It's it's like trying to get them to think like a reporter in some cases is not, it's not useful. Actually, this friend was just telling me that in corporate stuff, they have this, like, the Wall Street Journal they have a thing that's called uh, a person familiar with. They use that all the time. And it's so known that the corporate people will say, I will be a person familiar with. And that's what I wanted. I wanted them to say, like, I'll be a former official or I'll be a this or I'll be a that. But it was just hard to pin them down on exactly what. So I, try, you know, I tried to be err on the side of caution of not revealing who they were, even though problem is that can undermine the credibility of the story. Like if you make them too anonymous, you know, it'll seem like you're making it up. I don't think it reads like you're making it up. Well, that's good. I, <laughs> I didn't make it up. <laughs> I actually, uh, no offense, don't think you could have made it up. If I had made it up, some of these details, like I definitely would have left out as being too, kind of too absurd. I want to talk to you a little bit about writing it, which was also uh, nuts. Mm -hmm. You wrote seven, what, like 5,000 word stories? They're like between five and eight. Over the span of two months. Yep. How? Well, partly I feel I feel that it's a it's maybe a testament to how much time I normally waste when I'm writing somehow. Because once we got into a rhythm of it, I just did it much faster than I even I've ever approached in anything else. Like we would start the first two I wrote a couple a few weeks before the launch, because I wanted to have two drafts ready. I mean, I, I wanted to have three or four drafts ready, but I just didn't get to it. So then when we really got into it, we were actually, we would close them. We close them on Mondays, but I would mostly be done on Sunday. And I would start writing the next one on Sunday. And I'd basically write Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday, and turn it in on Wednesday. And then we'd go to the fact checkers on Wednesday and come back for first. Katya would get it and come back with the first edit. So, you know, I was writing, I think the most, I, I wrote 4,500 words one day. That was the most that I'd written. Partly it's like, it's a story that moves pretty fast or hopefully it reads that way too. But I feel like the stuff that takes a really long time is to like really like thinking through writing. Like it kind of was just like, go, go, go. So it was more like trying to get it all down and make it into a presentable form to Katya who, I mean, that's the harder part, I think, having edited stories is that she turned around the story in like a day or yeah, a day or a day and a half with like, here's how we should restructure it, here's what you do, blah, 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 which is more challenging than just kind of like dropping a bunch of words on a page. How did you approach that structure? How did you figure out how how to frame it? That part I, I spent months on. So that part I was working on the whole time, at least in my head, and actually I laid out a lot of the, what the episodes could be pretty early on. So there was a kind of natural, like he builds up this empire and then he gets arrested and then he flips and then he... Uh, goes after the people who used to work for him. But then there was the question of like, how do the timelines work? So we ended up doing this thing where some of the, like a one story is taken to a certain point in time. So like in episode two, it's the story of these Israeli guys who worked for the 
the prescription call center. And that's taken up to essentially like 2012 and Paul LaRue disappears. And then the next story starts back in time and you're following Paul LaRue's biography. And then the next story starts back in time and you're following other people that worked for him. And then they all kind of come together in 2012 at this point where he's arrested. And then they kind of spread out again with his like trying to uh, rope people in for the DEA. So we had like a structure, an overall structure for how the episodes would go. And then the trickier part was within each episode, like what goes where. And they mm-hmm. weren't, they're not strictly chronological. So trying to make it so they're not too confusing. There's so much information. And so many characters. Know, like so many characters, yeah. Did that structure or did that format change at all once these people started coming to you after those first couple episodes came out? The structure didn't change, but it's just funny to think what would have happened if I hadn't had that information. Because, like, for instance, I was going to, I was going to, I'd already planned episode three was going to be about Paul LaRue's background. And I knew a good bit about it, but I didn't have, like, really, like, detail about him growing up. And then one of the people who came to me was this relative of his who had also worked for him. Lulu. Lulu. That was his choice of uh, handle. When you When you're giving people, like, uh... Uh, the anonymized status. Do you let them choose their name? I do. Generally, I don't. But he he already came, he came to me. I mean, we we talk in like encrypted chat, so he already had chosen that as his handle. So yeah. you just went by Lulu. I just went with that. In other cases, I mean, it's such a weird thing. It's like writing. I mean, it feels like writing. I want to go by Stallion. <laughs> anyway, that guy came to me and you know gave me a huge part of that story. If I was going to write that story anyway. It just wasn't going to be as that's good. Yeah, well, there's also like a pretty extended aside when you introduce Lulu that's like, he told me a lot of things. Some of them I could verify, a lot of them I couldn't. I chose to trust the things. Like, I feel like you, I mean, clearly you were thinking a ton about your responsibility to sources, but also you were thinking a lot about responsibility to readers and trying to be as upfront about those decisions as you were making, it seems. Like, you, that that seemed to me to be a... Um, a pretty big step for you to say, like, there are some things in here that I couldn't verify. I'm choosing to trust him. I want you to know that that's what the deal is here. Like, it's not 100% verified. Yeah. It's such a tricky aspect of it. And we're not a giant institution with a lot of ingrained, you know, procedures around that sort of thing. Like, we have people who are very good at what they do and are professionals at doing this stuff. So we can, I think, talk about it at a high level. But when you sit down to actually say, like, what are we willing to publish here? You know, in some cases, we decided to say to the reader, uh, look, like, this is what someone's telling me. I trust this person because this person gave me documented evidence of their other claims, like literal, like, fake passport, copies of fake passports, copies of fake birth certificates, copies of Paul LaRue's real birth certificate. So this person I know I could trust. Now, they could be going off and telling me all kinds of stories, too, that aren't true. So I try to verify things elsewhere as well. But at some point, again... Like, it's either you're going to tell the story or not. So yeah. if you're going to tell the story, you have to figure out a way to tell it that will both have fidelity to the facts, obviously, but also, like, acknowledge the fact that this is a story in which the facts are not – they're not easily obtainable. And when in doubt, just name that. To me, that's better. I mean, maybe it leads to, like, a a more first-person-y kind of long, longer-winded version of it where you're sort of saying, like, I found this this way. And there's a lot of that in there. Like, I found this here. I heard this from this person. But the point of that is to make that explicit, to mm-hmm. make it relatively as transparent as you can make it. All right. So there's some, there's just some stuff we can't get into. Like, there's no way that we're going to do justice 
to the actual like narrative here i again just go read the thing it's like 40,000 words you can read it you can read most of it in a morning i can attest the i will say that the experience i had it was binge reading it was exactly like when you queue up like a new show on netflix just, i mean that's what we we're hoping like, for just give me one more some people are reading it in real time and that's that's exciting like a lot of people are reading it but I like the idea that someone can just like hear about it later and show up and go just, back, like and, yeah. go read the whole thing. I think I was interested in also like as your friend, as your co-host. <laughs> this took over your life, yeah, for months. Yeah, like I saw you some mornings, and it was clear that you had not slept. That's true. You took two trips. You have a very small child. Yeah, that made. It, I mean, that's almost made it more more stressful than the like you know, safety stuff or whatever. It's just like having a six-month-old kid and saying, okay, I got to go away. And, you know, there's no point going to the Philippines for less than seven days. Like, it takes two days to get there almost. Fortunately, I think because of it was essentially all I was doing, like I could also be really flexible. Like I pick up my daughter from daycare every day and hang out with her and like do my equal share of parenting during the day and then just like, I'll just sacrifice sleep and just stay up and work. So I'll just write until like three in the morning and then, but she gets up at, you know, 6.37. So then it's time to get up again. So it was both like, to me, a great idea. Like I felt like it was really working the way we wanted it to work, but also I just didn't think it through in terms of the amount of work that it would take. And like that also impacted the other people who work for the Atlas magazine, including like the fact checkers are having to, they're calling people, they're calling like law enforcement sources on Sunday afternoon to check a fact that needs to be closed by Sunday night, basically. And like, you know, Katya is like editing stories on Saturday. Like it, it got really, really crazy because we had set this schedule for ourselves that we felt like we wanted to keep and that it was worth keeping. But there were definitely parts along the way where I was like having like, like breakdown, you know. <laughs> Was it hard to keep all this, like, organized when you were on no sleep? Well, for better or worse, like, I was so obsessed with the story for so long that it's so ingrained in my head. Like, I can tell you, like, there are things that I should be able to re remember in my life that I can't remember, but I can remember, like, the minor, like, person who, like, showed up to guard the gold house in Hong Kong for six months and exactly when they did it and, like, what happened when they were there. Like... I just, there's so many things that I've just been obsessed about finding out. And then when I find them out, they really stick. And so that I could really keep a track of. The thing that I, I found very difficult was that I was still getting information. So it doesn't occur to you until you're really on deadline. I mean, maybe newspaper reporters that like to do a quality interview with someone on the phone would take an hour. And like, I would lose that hour for writing, but it would be very important to talk to that person. So I was just, I felt like I was like, juggling what should go in and, and when and writing. And then so there were things that I didn't even get time to track down that are like absolutely insane. Like it'd be insane if you left him out of a story. Like there was a whole thing. Paul LaRue, according to a couple people, had this whole thing with like Muammar Gaddafi. Where they were trying to like <laughs> smuggle Muammar Gaddafi out of Libya before he was killed with like two tons of gold. And... Like, I just didn't have time to chase that down, you know? It's like, but that's a pretty crazy story uh, to try to verify. When you're that deep in, like, what do you do? What do you do now? It's done. It's done. Like, do you feel like uh, like some sizable part of your brain just got opened back up? Yes. Have you got, are, you, are you sleeping? 
I've slept a couple like full nights of sleep. It feels fantastic. It doesn't. I mean, I'm going to write a book about it, so I'm not. It's not like I'm. It's in the rearview mirror. Like I'm going to take some time off. But the other thing is, once you get cranked up with these kind of like sources who are chatting with you, like it, it sort of doesn't stop. Like even though this, the last story is coming out, I'm still. You know, I wake up in the morning and I get like an encrypted email from someone who says. Hey, like, here's the thing you missed. And then I'm sort of down the road with them trying to figure out who they are and why they're talking to me and that sort of thing. So that's good because I have a lot more to write about in the future. But I would like to take a few weeks of like just headspace of thinking about other things and get clear of it and get interested in it again. How different will the book be than, than what I just read? I think it'll be actually totally different because one of the things about the story is there's so much happens that we basically, you know, it's very narrative, strictly narrative almost. But there's so many things that this story touches on that I couldn't really open up, like, you know, the world of encryption or the world of, like, opioid addiction, which, like, this prescription drug outfit was sort of on the early end of, like, all of these kind of obscure painkillers like tramadol and things like that that like they were selling tens and tens of thousands of them, hundreds of thousands of them. And it's sort of like before people really started talking about that, like prescription pill epidemic. So I feel like there's all these issues in addition to I'm just really interested in the kind of like psychology, like the moral psychology of the people involved, like pure thousands of people working for an organization. Some of them find out that it's like murderously criminal and they sort of have to make this choice. Like, am I going to stay? Am I going to leave? If I leave, are they going to kill me for leaving? And there's just like a whole spectrum of decisions that get made that are really like a classic, like ordinary person in extraordinary circumstances kind of situation. Do you think you'll ever get LaRue? I don't know. You know, he's very aware of his media coverage. So he... so He's reading the story. Definitely other people who are in prison right now, I've heard secondhand say, like, we like what you're doing, or, or you know, I, we're, we're, we're reading the story. All the, the lawyers are reading the story. Like, that's the first thing they say when I call some lawyer. You know, oh, yeah, I'm reading the story. So I'm sure there are things in the story that Paul LaRue thinks that I got wrong. I would be positive of that. So my hope would be that he says, like, I'm going to tell you the real story and I'm going to sit down with you. And if you're going to be writing a book about me, then you need to know what really happened. Like, I, that would be that would be good for the book for that to happen. It would be good for my understanding of what why he did all this, which I think is one thing at the heart of the whole thing is like, why does someone do these things? And I would like to find that out from him. Now, he may I, I don't know whether he'll have that desire or not. Do you have a theory on why he did it? I have a theory that there were a lot of a lot of things at play that people have talked about. I mean, there's things, you know, everybody, it's like if you go to like a death penalty, you look at a death penalty case, he's not up for the death penalty, but like there's like a mitigation hearing. And when you really learn about someone's background, like there's always deep reasons for why someone ends up in that spot. And I that's obviously true for him as well. Like, you know, I wrote a little bit about him being adopted and like I've heard from different people that he was unhappy to find out that he'd been adopted. When and he, he found out really late. He found out late in life and he felt maybe abandoned by his, you know, his birth mother. And he talked about that with employees and things like that. So I don't want to like armchair psychoanalyze someone I've never even met, but like you could see that in the mix. But also he's also a programmer, an incredibly talented programmer. And I feel like to me, some of the elements of like running this program 
this this prescription drug thing, which he gave him so much money and so much power that he could just do it from a terminal anywhere in the world. And then sort of like that translating into the real world of like, you know, pushing a button and having your underling go kill someone that like it, it, there's sort of a disconnect from the consequences of what you've set up to happen and what actually happens and you're not really internalizing it. So that's a theory of my own, but I, I, there's something interesting there, I think. I mean, sometimes I think of him like a, like a kind of like Mark Zuckerberg, but for like internet crime, he built a tremendous business. You know, he built a business with thousands of employees that made hundreds of millions of dollars. Like that could have been a different kind of business. You know, it's like a classic criminal thing. Like what if he had applied himself to something else? I hope you get a chance to ask him. Me too. I would like nothing more than to uh, sit across from him and like ask him about this stuff. I'd like him to reach out to you too, just because then I would uh, not be so worried about you. <laughs> I, there's no reason to worry about me. And I, the thing you were asking earlier about paranoia, like I was much more worried about the cops, like the Philippine cops, than about Paul LaRue. Like they don't come off so good, the Philippine cops. I mean, there's just a lot of corruption. And like, we, yeah, we got pulled over by a cop in the middle of nowhere and we had like a moment of thinking this cop knows, like we had just gone to try to do an interview and gotten turned away. And then like five minutes later on the completely desolate road, we got flagged down by a cop who was just waiting there in the dark. And so we had a kind of like, why is this person stopping us? It turned out he just wanted a bribe. <laughs> just to run in the middle, like bribe for, you know, I think you were speeding and you know, gave him 50 bucks or whatever. I have one more question and then we'll let people go read this story. It's a somewhat personal question that I have for you. But I know that for a long time, it was a frustration of yours that you weren't able to be reporting. And I want to know, really, like as your friend, just like, uh, has that itch been scratched? Like, was this what you were hoping it would be? Yes. Uh, yes. I, I would be, it would be absurd for me to deny that at any point. I mean, I like doing reporting. I like being in the middle of stories. And this story just, it just opened up in a way that stories sometimes close down, like one avenue and you realize, oh, wow, it's not as big as I thought. And then every avenue I went down, there was just something else. And that is what I really enjoy doing. And so, yeah, it was like, there's a reason why I've been obsessed with it for so long and why I could just work on it late at night. It was really like entertaining for me and fun for me to try to connect these dots and, and find these people and get them to talk to me. So, yeah, that's the thing that I love doing. I don't know if I would ever, if I'll ever find a story like that again. So that's part of the reason why I said, well, this, this could be a book as well. Like there's enough in here that I'm not tired of trying to find more. That's it for this special episode of the long form podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. I was the guest of this long form podcast. My host today was Max Linsky. Thanks to Max for having me on the podcast, <laughs> even though we had a lot of discussions about whether or not it was going to be too awkward or inappropriate to do so. Thanks to our other host, Aaron Lammer. Thanks to our editor, as always, Jenna Weiss-Berman. And thanks, as always, to our sponsor, MailChimp. We will be back with a regularly scheduled long-form podcast episode next week. Good job, Evan. Thanks, man. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. 
In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.